0: Well, I don't want you to think that I've forgotten about the book of Acts, but I was about to preach a two-part message on Paul's conversion, and I didn't want to split his conversion up for three weeks, and um, so we're going to save that for um, when I'll be back uh, in July to, to preach that. Um, this next Sunday, next Lord's Day, God willing, we'll have a professor from the Master Seminary here, Dr. Carl Hargrove, be preaching and then um, I'll be on vacation the following uh, Sunday, and then we have an anniversary service, so then uh, we'll get back to the book of Acts, Lord willing. Today I want to focus on um, a very important topic that um, I think we can handle in one Sunday, um, and that is something that maybe doesn't get talked about enough but, but needs to be because you run into... Uh, This issue out there, and I want to make sure you're properly equipped in understanding this. Evangelical leaders in the past few decades have taught two different views about whether salvation can be found by sincerely following other religions, whether that religion is Buddhism, and I know some people think of that as a philosophy, but it's also a religion, or whether it's Hinduism or Islam or New Age or whatever it may be. One view, the traditional view, is that salvation is found only by faith in Jesus Christ, not in any of the other religions of the world, and that a person must hear about Jesus, place faith in Him, and be converted if they are ever to be accepted by God. This traditional view of the church states that the other religions have a faulty view of God or a faulty view of Jesus, and that they essentially teach Falsehood to their people, and therefore God rejects them and rejects their worship. The second view, and one that is gaining in popularity even among evangelicals, unfortunately, and totally accepted by theological liberals, and one I believe you are likely to hear if you haven't heard it already, is that salvation can also be found by sincerely following other religions in this world. Rather than being a false way to God, These other religions are viewed as a true revelation of God to a different people, but the revelation, though true, is in a lesser way, a lesser sense. Christianity, they still say, is the brightest of all the lights that God gave, but the other religions still shine enough light to get people on their way toward God. Furthermore, they state the light that they shine is actually the light of Jesus Christ even though they're unaware that it's the light of Christ. They don't know it, but they are shining through these other religions the light of Christ. So when they follow these other religions, unknowingly they're following Christ and because of that they can get saved. Now this is one expression of the doctrine of pluralism. Pluralism means not just that there are many religions of the world, everybody knows that, but that they all basically teach the same thing, and they provide a variety of legitimate pathways to God. In the pluralist's mind, one belief system is as good as any others. Six in one, half dozen in the other, take your pick, it really makes no difference. They wrongly reduce all religions to faith in the divine, whatever that divine may be, and love for mankind. All religions, they say, may look different outwardly, they may be cased in different shells, but on the inside, they have the same core of faith, hope, and love. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that both of these views cannot be true at the same time. Either the other religions provide enough truth, enough light to lead people to God, or they are deceptive pathways that lead to destruction. We need to know and need to be firmly convinced which of these two is true. So nope. it doesn't really matter what you believe, and then you could say to your friend who follows this religion, hey, that's just as good as following this religion as well. And it really doesn't make a difference. That's a popular thing. That way you don't have to be opposed to anybody. You don't have to make enemies. You don't have to say anything that rubs against the grain. And I believe that's the primary reason it's gaining in popularity. This is the, this is the general feeling of the day and age we're in. And that can, that can kind of infiltrate the church. That kind of pluralistic thinking can can sneak into the church, and people can begin not wanting to sound too exclusive. And so this doctrine is gaining in popularity. But um, if we were to go to the Scriptures, we could go to many Scriptures, and we could say, well, what about Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, where it says, there's no other name given among men under heaven whereby men may be saved. That's the name of Jesus Christ. There's no other name. Or we could go to Jesus in the upper room where He said, I am the what? The way no one comes to the Father except through me. And we say, that's, that's fine, right? But they would say they're actually following Jesus by following the other ways. They're actually using the way of Jesus. You see how they manipulate Scripture. Or we could go to John eight twenty four, where Jesus told the Jews, unless you believe that I am the Messiah, you'll die in your sins. Now, maybe you don't know what it means to die in your sins, but it doesn't sound like a good thing, does it? you're going to die in your sins. In other words, you'll be accountable for all of your sins. That sounds like you'll have to pay for them. It doesn't sound like you can be a sincere Jewish person following another way, ignore Jesus, and be okay with God. Jesus didn't say that. So this issue of Jesus is not something that we can let go or sidetrack. There is another passage, however, that I think addresses the same question from a different angle. And it addresses the The question by asking what are the people actually doing when they participate in the worship of another god in the worship of another religion what are they actually doing how does god view that worship is he happy that they're at least showing up to temple or synagogue and worshiping or is he loathsome of that and rejecting of that worship are they sincerely searching for god in some convoluted way that they don't really understand what does god think of this now, you would expect having the Bible and teaching that the Bible is the authoritative word of God and knowing that the Bible is sufficient to guide Christians into all the things we're supposed to believe and practice, you would think that somewhere in the Bible it would tell us what God's view is of the other religions of the world, right? Right? There's got to be a lot of religions that were in the world back in the day. There were, and there are today. You'd think somewhere in the Bible it would say, what is God's view of these other religions and people who worship in these other religions? And guess what? The Bible does tell us, and it tells us, I think, quite clearly. To some of you, this will just reinforce what you already believe. To others of you, I think this will help answer some nagging questions that you have. For maybe a few of you, this is going to rock your world. So strap in if that's you cuz here we go. You are about to meet a God in heaven who describes himself as a jealous God, a jealous God. Please direct your attention this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 And verses 14 through 22. First Corinthians has many wonderful chapters in it. It's maybe best known for its love chapter, chapter 13. People love to study chapter 12 and 14 about the spiritual gifts. There's chapter 7 that tells us about marriage and singlehood. Chapter 6 explores all kinds of issues about sexual immorality and whether or not believers should take believers to the courts. A lot of great topics. Chapter 1 and 2 is all about the cross of Christ Chapter 10 seems to get neglected. When people come to chapter 10, it's usually to verse 13 where it talks about no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, God is faithful and provides the way of escape from that temptation. A lot of people don't know about this section here, and I think it's a wonderfully instructive section of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22. I'll read it and we'll glean some truth from it. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved... Flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? Oh, a lot of truth in this section. Very powerful, powerful truth to learn. This really is a scripture that is in the, the larger context of defining what are the boundaries of Christian liberty. What are we free in Christ to engage in doing, and what are we not free in Christ to do? But in the middle of teaching about that freedom, and that's a whole other subject, and it's a wonderful subject, but it's not our subject this morning. If you want to read about that in 1 Corinthians, do that. You can also read Romans 14 and 15 that talks about our freedom and how to use that freedom in Christ. In the midst of dealing with that issue of Christian freedom, it gives a clear picture of what God thinks of the worship of other God, God's opinion on the matter. And by the way, that's all that really matters to me. And here God tells us that he would have us completely separate from false religions and their worship services. And here we are afforded the three views that God has of other religions. Three, this is our outline, three views God has of other religions. I'm going to give each one as we go along. His first view. Other religions are something we should flee from. Look at verses 14 and 15. Other religions are something we should flee from. Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Now, at the beginning of verse 14, Paul uses an unusually strong connective word. It's translated, therefore, it shows a close logical connection with what he just wrote. He uses this right at the beginning to tie the instruction he's about to give backward to the warning that he gives, not in verse 13. You have to go back to verse 12 to find the warning about Israel sinning in the wilderness with idolatry. So this instruction is in light of the severe chastisement that the nation of Israel had from God for its sin of idolatry out in the wilderness before they entered into the land of promise. So what follows is also a strong warning for the Corinthian church, and by the way, it is a strong warning for you and me as well. It's against all idolatry and every form of idolatry. Yet with a warning, I please note, because I think sometimes when we preach strong against certain things that are wrong, people think it's unloving, and so I want to point out right there that Paul starts with a note of care. He expresses his warmth towards the Corinthians by saying, my beloved ones my beloved. He wants them to know when I'm going to say are tough words. They are a warning, but I love you. By the way, true love always speaks the truth, right? It's phony love and false love of the world, the love of tolerance that lies and says, I'm going to go along with your lie, and that's love. That is not love. And they don't have love. We have love because we speak the truth even when the truth hurts. By the way, I don't want a friend that will lie to me because they want to be my friend. I want a friend that's going to tell me the truth, don't you? Well, that's what Christians are to other people. They're saying, look, I didn't invent the rules of the universe. I didn't invent God. This is God, and it's His Word, and it's what He says, and you're going to have to face Him one day. You're not going to have to face me. You're going to have to face Him. And if you find out then, it's going to be too late for you. So guess what? When I tell you the truth, it may sound like I'm a big, fat meanie, but I'm not. I'm a nice guy. I'm telling you the truth now. You need to hear this. Flee idolatry. A strong and quick exhortation. Flee it. I like it when the Bible is very easy to understand. You say, oh, the Bible, you know, it's got so many interpretations, nobody can understand it. Flee idolatry. What do you think that means? There's the word flee, and then there's the word idolatry. I think it's pretty clear. In fact, it is the main point and the main application for the Corinthians and for you and me. Flee, fugo. It even sounds in Greek like fleeing, doesn't it? Fugo, you go, Fugo. Flee, get out of here. It's an imperative mood. It's in the present tense, and in Greek that means flee and keep fleeing. Run and don't stop running. Don't look back. Keep going as far and fast away as you can. Paul used this exact verb concerning any sex, any sex outside of marriage. He used it back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18 where he said, flee immorality. Flee immorality, flee idolatry, two sins you're not to contemplate, you're to run from. God hates them both. A related commandment concerning idolatry is in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 21, where John wrote, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Idols must be something we have to be constantly guarding ourselves from. Back in verse 13, we were told when we are tempted that we had an escape route. When you are tempted, there's an escape route that you can have. Well, guess what? He's telling you here, sometimes that escape route is run, run fast and far. Don't get anywhere near it. Don't get close to it. Don't buddy up to it. Get out of there. Like Joseph that ran from Potiphar's wife when she wanted sex, right? Don't sit there and go, hmm, I wonder how we can settle this issue together. No, just run. Unfortunately, Israel did not flee from idolatry out in the wilderness, and they suffered tremendously. You remember the golden calf where they said, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt? You know, they're, they're actually saying, this is Yahweh, here's a representation of him, a golden calf, look how beautiful it is. God hated it, rejected it, and actually had many of them die because of that idolatry. Now, for the sake of context, let us ask, why was this commandment given to the Corinthian church? Answer because Paul knew the Corinthian Christians were being invited to pagan idol feasts in that city to join the celebration of another deity. These kinds of religious feasts were common in the city of Corinth. Religion was very much a part of common life in Corinth, just as it is in America today. The ancient Greeks were filled with all kinds of religious expressions. Corinth was no exception at all. The cultic followers of the gods of Egypt, Rome, and Greece were all there in Corinth. There was the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. They had a thousand or so of their priestesses come down and descend from the Acro-Corinth above down into the city to offer their bodies in sexual immorality as part of the worship that would go on uh, towards Aphrodite. There also was the temple of Poseidon, the ruler of the sea. There were other temples in Corinth of Apollo, Hermes, Athena, even one that was dedicated to, quote, to all the gods, just to include all of them. Corinth was an idolatrous and an immoral city, and they had to be told, flee from immorality, flee from idolatry. Yet the Christians there had regular social interaction with unbelievers, just like we do today. You are going to be bumping in unbelievers, and they are going to have their belief set, and you need to know where you can go, where you cannot cross the boundary with them, and what you are allowed to do. That's an issue of Christian freedom, you see. People are followers of other religion now. You run into them. You try to witness to them. You try to identify with them, connect with them. How far are you allowed to go? Many of those relationships for the Corinthians were started before their conversion. That may also be true of you. So it would be expected that they would attend some of the festivities. You know, we're having a festivity. It's kind of a cultural thing with us. We go and we do this thing. We're inviting you. There's a lot of good food. There's a lot of partying. There's a lot of beautiful music. Aren't you going to come? And then saying no seems like you're just being extremely rude. Paul perceived the danger in this, that some of the believers were edging too close toward idolatry. It appears that some of them seem to have thought of their freedom in Christ too widely. Oh, I have freedom in Christ. Maybe they reasoned this way. Hey, idols are not really real. They're not really anything. And we're free in Jesus Christ. I mean, we've been forgiven. There's no condemnation with us at all. And I would really like to relate to this unbeliever and be polite. And so I'm going to go to their temple. I'm going to sit down with them. I'm going to eat at their temple. I'm going to try to be a good neighbor. I'm going to try to relate to them a little bit. Who knows? Maybe they will reciprocate and they'll come back and attend church with me sometimes. But what they did not factor in was that participation in the pagan idol festivities was actually worship and a misuse of liberty. It crossed the line with God. It was not an area of freedom for them. God did not want them doing this. God wanted them fleeing from this. So Paul next appeals to their sense of discernment. You judge whether or not this is true. I'm speaking to you as to those who are mature, those who have been taught the word of God. You judge this. I'm teaching you something that's spiritual. You sit and think about this and contemplate this. By the way, all good Bible teaching engages the minds of believers, right? What we're teaching, don't accept just because I'm saying it. Think about this. Sort this through scripture. Study this and you will see this is true. You're mature. Pick up the word of God and study this through and see what it says. And so that brings us to the second view that God has of other religions, and that is this. Other religions cannot be mixed with Jesus Christ. Other religions cannot be mixed with Jesus Christ. Now, this is the bulk of the section, verses 16 through 21. I'm going to read it as we kind of go through it here. What Paul is teaching, just to summarize this section, is that when we Christians come to the Lord's Supper, what we call communion, when we pass the elements around and we share it in them together, We, being his body, we share in fellowship with Jesus Christ when we're at his table. He is present with us, and we share that fellowship with him. And we cannot do that, and at the same time, sit at the table with demons. That's what he's saying. Now, what does he mean? Let's see how he develops his thought. First, he gives two illustrations of what he's trying to teach. The first illustration, illustration number one, is in verse 16. Look at it. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now you can hear, this is the language and the imagery of the Lord's Supper, what we call communion. The cup of blessing, what's that? That was likely the third cup in the Passover feast of the Jews, which was a cup that was actually blessed. That third cup was likely the one the Lord Jesus used in the Passover feast at the institution of the Lord's Supper, when he spoke of himself in his own blood. Paul speaks of one cup. Now, when we pass it out, we have about, what, 400 cups, right? Paul speaks of one cup. Why does he speak of that? Because they took one chalice, they took one cup, and they passed it around, and all the disciples drank from that one cup cup, meaning that we all receive life from the one source, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. So also with the bread, it's spoken of as one bread, symbolizing Jesus' body. They had one piece of flat bread, and it was passed around hand to hand, and it was broken one piece at a time, and they would partake of that. They were all eating from one loaf. They all received their life from one source, the body of Christ. Here Paul teaches that partaking of the cup of wine is sharing in the blood of Christ. Eating of the bread is participating in the body of Christ. At the time of communion, we fellowship intimately with Christ and he fellowships with us. We have a common spiritual bond with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're sitting at his table, actually, and we're communing with him. We have that relationship with him. It's a special time where we're communing with the holy and raised, and risen Christ. It's a time when we deeply commune with him. It's not to be taken lightly. We read in Corinth also some that were taking it very lightly. God actually had them get sick, and a few of them died because they were treating that holy time so flippantly. We are many members. We're one body, but we all come together as one body. We come around the same table. It all comes from one source. We partake together because we are one body and we're fellowshipping together. That's the first illustration. The second lo- illustration is in verse 18. Look at the nation of Israel, Paul writes. Are not those who eat the sacrifices shares in the altar? He's talking about sharing and participation. We, we participate in the Lord's Supper together as the body of Christ. Now he's going to give an illustration of the nation of Israel and the Levitical priesthood and how they shared there as well. The offer, the offer of a sacrifice would bring the offering, bring it to the Le- Levitical priest who would then do with it what whatever he was supposed to do, chop it up, kill it, offer it, burn it, do whatever he was supposed to do with it. And he would take part of that burnt offering on the, bur- on the bronze altar and, and the priest would take some of that and the priest would eat some of that and the offerer would eat some of that as well. They would partake together. They would share together in the offering, you see, and that was the point. To show communion between the Lord and the worshiper, they ate. So there was participation in in the times of worship. There was fellowship. There was connectivity that was going on in both illustrations. At this point, Paul anticipates some objections to what he's about to tell them in fleeing idolatry and and not participating in these other things. He's anticipating objections, and so he makes a clarification. Look at verse 19. What do I mean then? What am I getting at? What What is the point I'm driving at here? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? So that thing that they brought into the temple, is that really anything there? Or is the idol itself anything? Is that what I'm saying? Don't be confused, Paul writes. I'm not teaching that the idol is real. I'm not teaching there, that there are actually other gods out there. By the way, if you were to rewind to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 4, he wrote this, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but what? One. There's only one God. That's reality. There's only one God. Atheists don't realize that there is a God. We know that there's a God. Polytheists think there's many gods. There's not many gods. There's not no God. There's one God. That's reality. If you don't get that, Well, I just gave you an education because that's what you need to have. You need to have an education. Reality is there's one God, and that's what he wrote, and we know that. This is a monotheistic universe. It's run by one God, one eternal God, one unchanging God, one omnipotent God. Zeus does not exist. Artemis is not real. Hermes, Apollo, figments of the imagination. There are no idols in reality. Throw in another verse, Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Pretty clear, right? So it's not possible to fellowship with a non-existent deity. You cannot fellowship with Aphrodite. She doesn't exist. But, and this is a big but, And this is very important. Next, in verse 20, Paul gives the zinger. And you really need to understand this. I really want you to get this. No, they're not real. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to who? Demons. And not to God. And not to God. And not to God. To God. See the view that says in pluralism, this is just another way to God. You hear that? We, we, we can be a Buddhist Christian. No, you can't. We can be a Hindu Christian. No, you can't. We can be a Muslim Christian. No, you can't. We can be a pagan Christian. I don't even know what that is. If you're sacrificing to that other God, you're not sacrificing to God. You're sacrificing and worshiping demons. So I'd like to pause there and just let that sink in, you know, because that's pretty important. Because sometimes people think that there's no such thing as demons and how wrong they would be. This is Paul's concern demons do exist, gods are not real. Polytheism is phony. The spirit world is real. There are angels. They're not these cute little cherubs on the Christmas tree. They're mighty warrior angels that would make us shake in our boots, scare the bejangers out of us if we saw one. That's why they always have to say, What? Do not fear. What do you mean don't fear? Of I'm gonna fear. First thing I'm gonna do is fear. I'm gonna fear. I'm gonna fear a lot. I'm gonna tremble in fear. That's what angels are, they're real. Some of you say, I, I want to see an angel. Yeah, yeah. you better think about that one before you pray that one. There are also fallen angels who followed Lucifer in his rebellion against God, and they are demons. The word demon actually originates from a word that means like a, like a divine one, with, with divine-like powers. These are not natural creatures. These are supernatural creatures. Where are they? They are spirit beings. Yeah, well, I only believe what I see. Well, then you can't believe in God because you don't see Him either. As sure as God is real and as a spirit being, there is a spirit world. As sure as heaven is a real place and we can't see it, there's a spirit world. And there are spirit beings that populate the spirit world. Sometimes they're allowed to become visible and to come into this world and do things as you see the angels doing, you know, blinding someone or or leading someone out of jail or something like that, but the vast majority of time they're hidden, and they're meant to be hidden. They're going about secretly and quietly serving. The good angels are going about secretly serving the elect. It says that in Hebrews chapter 1. But there are demons. They're not good angels. They're fallen angels. They're evil angels. You know, modern Christians don't factor this enough into their thinking, for the most part, our culture has made fun of the idea of demons. I mean, it's fun to, you know, they're like cartoons, like, you know, the Duke Blue Devils or something like that. You know, the, 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 the demon deacons or I forget all the names of the different ones out, that are out there. It's just something like a cartoon character. One demon pops up on one shoulder, angel pops up on the other shoulder. And that's what we think of demons. We don't believe in that in the scientific world. But the Bible says they're real. They're very intelligent. They introduce lies into the church according to First Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. Dr. Merrill Unger has a book called Biblical Demonology. I don't recommend it because it dives deep into this issue and I don't want you spending tons of time in it. Uh, But if you have a research paper or something like that to do, it's okay. He says, many in a boastful age of science and enlightenment dismiss the biblical claim as a mere remnant of medieval superstition or treat the whole matter as an amusing joke. That's true. But he goes on and documents how The the pagan religions around the world, even in ancient times and modern times, all understood that there were spirits, familiar spirits, and they understood these are just different names for the same group of people that we're talking about, the same spirit beings we're talking about, demons. They knew they were there. They were aware of their power. They were aware of their activity. And for some reason, the modern world is less aware. You can't read your Bible without seeing that demons are real. They are not superstitious de- designations for diseases. Oh, he's got to go exercise his demons like he's got to overcome mental illness and that's all that it is. It's just a way of talking about mental illness. That's not it. That's not good enough. They can affect the way we think. They can affect the way unbelievers think. Sure enough, they could drive people mad, but that's not to equate them. They are not spirits, by the way, of wicked men who are now deceased. They're not some pre-Adam race that died and now they're like, no, they're not that. They're fallen angels. Luke chapter 16 and verse 23 indicates that when evil people die, they do not turn into demons. The demons already have a set number. They were created a long time ago. They were created good, and they, they fell. Just like man fell, a group of angels fell. Demons are supernatural fallen angels, and they have all of the powers of good angels, although God restricts their use of them. Dr. Charles Ryrie summarizes the uh, the proof of this. Demons are the angels who rebelled with Satan. In support of this are the following considerations. Satan is designated the prince of the demons in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 24. We know that Satan has well-organized ranks of angels who further his purposes. Two of these ranks are labeled rulers and authorities, which are the same designations for two of the ranks of good angels in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 and Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. In several places, demons are called spirits, Though they are unclean spirits, which associates them not with humans, but with angels. Angels are called spirits. End quote. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41, it also refers to the devil and his angels. They fell with him from the original holy position that God gave to them. So just as the holy angels have their ability to affect nature, so these evil angels possess real, though limited power. And they are the powers of deception behind the worship of every other god in every other religion in the entire world. Behind each religion and behind each statue to worship and behind each false representation of God is the brain thrust of some intelligent evil spirit. The lies in these religions are introduced not by creative, meditating men or women but by demons. They are the ones who concocted the ideas and injected them into the human race so that they would become a religion, so that they would get the worship that they crave. I mentioned that they even introduced false doctrines into the church. Listen to 1 Timothy 4.1. The Holy Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the Christian faith. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons demons teach they have doctrine they have things they want you to believe they have they have ideas they want your mind to go after and so they even bring them into the church to draw some out of the church to cause them to worship the true god in a wrong way this equation of other religions with demons is actually attested in the old testament as well did you know that Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 16 and 17, it says this, They made God jealous with strange gods, with abominations they provoked the Lord to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. Notice the equation of demons with the gods, and notice God's rejection of both of them. The gods of the people, the gods of the Gentiles, the gods of the Hindu nation today, the gods, for those Buddhists who actually believe in God or they get into the worship of some gods, some Buddhists do, some don't, those are false gods. What is Allah? It's another name of the true God. No, he's not. He's a false god impersonated by a demon. That's who he is. Psalm chapter 106. Verses 36 and 37, they served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. He's equating demons and idols, demons and idols. And so the worshiper goes into their temple to enjoy the feast with their God. There's a statue there. They think of their God as providing rain. They think of their God as providing something else that's beneficial for them. And unknown to them, but known to the demons, they are worshiping and fellowshipping in that meal and in that worship service with the demons. That is what is actually happening. That is the curtain pulled back. That is looking back into there and saying, what's actually happening here? They're fellowshipping and sharing and participating with demons. That's what they're doing. When we flirt with idolatry, when we flirt with false religion, any false religion, even under the banner of Christianity that has departed from the gospel, we commune with and open ourselves up to demonic influence. Did you know that? Did you know that you you can never be possessed by a demon, but you can open your life up to the influence of the devil? And you don't want to do that. That is why we read such strong warnings given to Christians from synchronizing their beliefs with other religions. In the second letter, Paul would write to these same Corinthians in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians verses 14 all the way through verse 17. He says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. He doesn't mean that, you know, you can't go out and do this and do that with unbelievers. He's talking about ministry and worship and service. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? The answer to that question is none. What fellowship has light with darkness? You answer it, none. And then he says, what harmony has Christ with Belial, another name for the devil? And the answer is zero. There is no room for compromise or freedom in this area, God says. Worship of God in any other form and joining people worshiping him in any other name is idolatry and is participation with demons. Brothers and sisters, worship and false religion like this is an abomination to God. Dr. John MacArthur gives this insight. Everyone worships, he writes, even an atheist. He worships himself. When men reject God, they worship false gods. That, of course, is what God forbids in the first commandment. False gods may be either material objects or mythical objects. Supernatural beings. End quote. Then he goes on. Idolatry does not begin with the sculptor's hammer, it begins in the mind. When we think of God, we should visualize absolutely nothing. No visual conception of God could properly represent his eternal nature and glory. End quote. We don't think of a cow, we don't think of a horse, we don't think of a unicorn, we don't think of the man on the moon. We don't think of an old man with a gray beard up above. No, that's all idolatry. This has profound implications for all the religions of the world. What is an idol? A false god. A false or incomplete or reductionistic image of the glory of the one great and true God we worshipped here today. It is calling God something he is not. It is reducing him. It is smearing his face. What was God's view of the gods of the nations that surrounded the nation of Israel? Well, I think he made it very clear in the first two of the Ten Commandments, did he not? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make an image and bow down before it. And here, Paul says other religions are not some other incomplete way of worshiping Jesus, some lesser light that leads to God. They are false. They are unacceptable to God. Even worse, they are demonic. They are not a lesser light. They are a plunge into darkness. Listen, every good lie has a measure of truth to it. And so, It's understandable that there's going to be some things that are in a religion that has some parallels with Christianity. That doesn't make it true. That just makes it a very clever and crafty lie. Love for mankind, belief in the divine, you could say all religions have something like that, but they all mean something different in those religions. Faith, hope, love, but they all mean something different. It's a different hope, a different faith, a different love. It's not the same. Romans 1 speaks of this. Speaking of idolatry, it said, professing to be wise, the worshipers of these other religions became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Idolatry never pleases God. It never pleases God because it never represents God correctly. So, when the modern world religions speak of God and they don't speak of him as a person but they speak of him as a world force, that's a demonic idea. When they give him another name like Allah, who has different character than the God of the Bible, that's demonic. When they even promote what 2 Corinthians 11.4 calls another Jesus, another Jesus is a false Jesus. It's not good enough to believe in any Jesus. You have to believe in the right Jesus. That is all idolatry. Dr. Grimaki in his commentary commented, this statement disproves the theory that all men worship the same God only using different terms and methods. Although idols actually do not exist, demons use men's affinity to worship idols to get worship for themselves. Unsaved men, totally deceived and blinded spiritually, are unaware that they are actually fellowshipping with the world of evil spirits. Consequently, idol worship is not morally neutral. It is sinful, evil, and should be avoided completely, end quote verse 21 is the key. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. That's not a commandment. Please read it again. He's not telling you don't do this. He's telling you you can't do this. That's a declarative statement. There is no way to fellowship with Jesus Christ and fellowship with demons. He won't let you Charles Hodge writes, The table of the Lord is the table at which the Lord presides and at which his people are his guests. The table of devils is the table at which devils preside and at which all present are their guests. What the apostle means to say is that there is not merely incongruity and inconsistency in a man's being the guest and friend of Christ and the guest and friend of evil spirits, but that the thing is impossible. The Lord is holy. The demons are unholy. They just don't mix. You can't commune with the two of them at the same time. God won't commune with you if you commune with the devils. What did Jesus say in Matthew 6? You can't serve two masters. You could try, but you will fail. Again, Dr. Hodge says, The heathen did not intend to worship devils, and yet they did. What would it avail, therefore, to the reckless Corinthians who attended the sacrificial feasts of the heathen to say that they did not intend to worship idols? The question was not what they meant to do, but what they did. Not what their intention was, but what was the import and effect of their conduct. He goes on, this principle applies with all its force to compliance with the religious services of the heathen at the present day. Those who in pagan countries join in the religious rites of the heathen are just as much guilty of idolatry and are just as certainly brought into fellowship with the devils as the nominal Christians of Corinth, who although they knew that an idol was nothing and that there is but one God yet frequented the heathen feasts, end quote. Beloved, this applies to your participation in any false religious ceremony of worship. We want to be careful with our words. We want to be loving in our outreach towards others, but you cannot go into a worship service of a false religion, participate in that, and not be participating with demons. We know many Roman Catholics do not understand what they are doing when they come into a mass and they're worshiping in a mass. Many of them, I think think that they're worshiping in Jesus, and many of them may have the best of intention, and I don't mean to judge all their motives or anything like that, but when they hold up the wafer and they believe that wafer in the Lord's Supper and the Mass has literally been turned into the body and blood of Jesus, and they believe it so much they bow before it and worship it and genuflect before it, they are worshiping without knowing it a demonic idea, and you cannot participate in that. You cannot be part of that. There is a line, and you cannot cross over that line without enraging God against you. The same thing is true with some festivity that a Muslim has, and you're trying to identify if it is part of their worship, it is part of their celebration of their God, you cannot partake in it. And some of you have origins from the east, you have to sort that out with the different customs of the worship of ancestors and things like that. You cannot participate in the worship of ancestors in feasts that have that. It's not that the food is contaminated. It is that the act itself is a celebration with the demons in their trickery. You know better. You are mature. You know the truth. You have to be the guiding light for other people. And I say, be gentle as you can, because they don't understand. And it's hard enough for them to hear that about their own religion. It makes us sound like we're, like we're arrogant, and it's our way, and it's only our way, and you have to be gentle, and you have to explain to them, look, I, I, it's not that I want this to be true. I love Roman Catholics. I love witnessing to Muslims. I love witnessing to Jewish people. But the Jews, as they rejected Christ, The Bible calls their synagogues the synagogues of what? Synagogues of Satan. And you have to tell them, this is not another avenue to God. This is not a lesser light. This is a place where demons have tricked and prevailed in false religion, and they are so excited about what you're doing, but God is not. And this makes you separate. And you need to understand, this is not an area of Christian freedom. This is not an area where we debate This is an area where you cross over and you enrage God, and that's the last point I want to get that in here quickly. Verse 22, the last and third view that God has is that these other religions provoke God's jealousy. Did you know that? Did you know that when God looks at the worship of all these other things, he is filled with jealousy, the good kind of jealousy? And I have to add that because our kind of jealousy is selfish. With God, there can never be a selfish jealousy. He deserves the worship. He deserves it. And we have to choose our sides. There's no middle ground. Please see that. Here we have a direct warning from the Apostle Paul. Remember the subject we're dealing with here. Remember who we're speaking about. We're speaking of the Lord of glory. And remember how he leveled the Israelites in the wilderness because of their sin of idolatry and their unbelief. How it it, it flamed him into anger and how he consumed them. Here's a little bit of what he told them in the wilderness. Exodus 34, watch yourselves that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land in which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst, but rather you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their asherim, their gods. For you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. If you don't hear emotion in that from your God, you don't get it. Isaiah forty-eight eleven. For my own sake, for my own sake I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. Does that sound like God is selfish? He is not selfish. He belongs, all glory belongs to God. And he will not give it to a false religion. He'll not share it with Muhammad or Allah. He will not share it with Buddha. It all belongs to him. That's why we're in here, to give him that glory. And that's why he says, you don't want to incite God to jealousy, do you? You want to incite God to jealousy? Then he asks the next question. You are not stronger than him, are you? You're going to do fisticuffs with God? You're going to cite him to jealousy? You ever seen a jealous man when his wife has been violated? Have you ever looked in the eyes of a man whose wife has been violated and he is jealous, filled with jealousy? You ever thought about the rage and the anger there? You think about God when his glory is violated. No man will stand before that rage this is not something God takes light. Maybe you thought it was. In a pluralistic age, I thought we needed that warning where everyone is saying, hey, let's just all just get along. Okay. We'll do our best to get along. Do our best to live at peace with everyone. Do our best to speak well of our fellow uh, countrymen, anyone else we talk to. We'll do our best to respect them in every way we can, but we will not cross the line and join them in those activities that worship these other gods. Got it? It should be clear. And there are not other pathways to God. There are pathways that Jesus said, there are two roads, the narrow one that leads to life, and then there's the broad way that leads to destruction. And that destruction is everlasting destruction. Father, ingrain these truths upon us. Help us to understand you as a jealous God. Help us to worship you with all of our heart and be faithful to you. Help us not lift up our skirts to other lovers, but only be faithful to one, to you to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and come in here ready to give you exclusively all the glory. For every benefit we have in our life comes from you. And we thank you for this message, Lord. Please be with us in our baptism service now. Amen.